You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning, Village Church and guests. Today's focal passage is from the book of Hosea, chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. The passage should be displayed on the screens up here. I'll give you a moment if you have your Bibles just to follow along. I'm going to start here at verse number 1. Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine, vat shall not feed them. The new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come from the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival? On the day of the feast of the Lord. For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Because of your great inequity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a follower's now is on his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gilbeth. He will remember their inequity, and he will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame, and they became detestable like the things they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what you will give. Give them a miscarrying womb and dry beast. Every evil of their heirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up, and they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wonders among the nations. You all can be seated, and any children here can be dismissed to classes. Man, Tyler knows how to kill a party, doesn't he? (laughs) Wow, that was incredible. Thanks for that, Tyler. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. I mean, when you read something like that, 
it would be like walking into a room and you're like in the fourth scene of a movie in a time period that you know nothing, nothing about. And you're just like, what is happening? And so I, my plan is to bring some semblance of clarity to God's word from Hosea today. But first, would you pray with me? And then we will uh, hop in and, and see what happens. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that we can freely sing to you and about you. Thank you for the truths that we got to declare. Today, would you show us that home is, is resting in you? That, that nothing in this world can, can bring us home like receiving your love and living in light of your love for us. And that's only found by your grace in, in us trusting Christ alone for the fullness of life. Thank you for your goodness, for the celebration, for, for letting this little church be 13 years old today and celebrating new life and, and all that comes with that, just the daily walk of being the village church and in this city and in this county. Thank you for your grace, your abundant grace to us in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Most famously repeated by Dorothy in the 1939 classic, Wizard of Oz. If you haven't seen that, come on. Uh, Dorothy, a young girl, kind of experiences some journey. She encounters some lions, some tigers, some bears. She interacts with friends and she interacts with foes, which is to the north and which is to the south, and wizards who are a big deal and all that powerful. And then she finds out that they're not really that. Well, I can't. That would be a spoiler. Um, 1939, you should probably have seen it by now. Uh, flying monkeys, all kinds of things, perilous uh, paths, a long journey far from her home in Kansas. Now look, today we're going to like talk about what it is to be home a lot. And, and just on the front end, I know that, that some may not have the best experience of what home is and what that feels like. And I know that some may not even have a place right now to call home. And I, I just want to encourage you on the front end that, that Jesus can relate. Uh, based on what we see in the scriptures, it seems that Jesus called home wherever he laid his head at night. And he was, he was the eternal creator of all that was. And as he came to earth, he found his home in the midst of, of us and all of our brokenness and all of our difficulty but we can all relate to the feeling associated with the line, there's no place like home. As Dorothy clicks her heels, there's no place like home. She just wants to be away from all of these things, and there's been highs and lows, but if I could just be back to where I'm safe and comfortable and where, where things are familiar and where, where the, the people that I know welcome me in, not all of this peril and turbulence that I've been dealing with. There is no place like home. Last week, I was in Denver and uh, it's pretty sweet. Uh, Kim and I and the Tuckers got to go to the Acts 29 U.S. conference out there, and it was downtown, cool cityscapes, um, beautiful rooms of nearly thousands of people. I think there were 1,500 plus pastors and, and, and wives and church kind of staff in this room singing beautiful songs, hearing great preaching, thousands of people in a room that, you know, they get me because they have the same job that I have, right? Uh, not real jobs like you all have. You have jo they have jobs like I have. And so all these people, dear friends that we've known for a long, long time and, uh, you know, got to sneak out for a few hours and see some picturesque mountains and all those things. And yet, 
even three or four days out there, it's like the longing of like, ah, you know, but, but like there's no place like home. I just, I just want to be home. And, and even with those people and those people preaching and those, those bands and all that stuff, it's like, no, but this is home. Like these are my people. I want to be here. And so we get that. Like home centers us. It's where we can literally kick off our shoes and put our guard down. It's familiar. It's, it's kind of uh, command central for the things of life. And, and if you have family for family and for, for rhythms and, and space, in my home, I have this green chair in front of the door uh, just next to the stairs. And, and when I sit in that green chair, as often as I get to, sometimes in the morning I'll sit and read. And, and sometimes throughout the day, I'll just kind of just sit there, even for like three minutes. And I, whenever I do, I just like, like it just lets me take a deep breath. And like my kids make fun of me and they're like, dad in the green chair, he's like different than dad in all the other chairs on the earth. Like he's just... It's like home. It's just like home base. You know, I have books to the right, and it's just like, it's just a sweet space. Home is living rooms, and, and it is back patios for grilling with neighbors, and it's, it's comfort at night when you lay your head down before the, the morning and the fray and the daily grind picks back up once again the next day, like, it is a sense of beginning, and it's a sense of end. You want to start there and end there. Home is a place, but equally it is a people. Home is a place to exist, but also the ideal of home is, is a people to whom we belong, a place where we want to always be welcomed. Tim Chester, in his, uh, his commentary on Hosea, he kind of sets the tension of home in a world that doesn't feel like home like this. I think this quote might be on the screen. It goes like this. He says, when God first made humanity, he placed us in a home. In Genesis 1, he says, God saw everything that he had made. That's all of creation. And behold, it was very good. The whole world was good. Yet God still plants a garden for humanity. God still makes a specific place that will be home for humanity. The whole world is good, but only Eden is home. And that was, of course, before the fall, before sin kind of wreaked havoc on things. We had a home, Eden, with God, with creation, with one another, and, and we forsook that home. This is the storyline of the Bible. We forsook that home, and we went our own way, and, and, and we rebelled by our sin. We mistrusted God, and we trusted in the world to satisfy us completely. And in judgment, we were cast out of that garden. And, and then we see kind of the, the wrestling match. The book, between the bookends of this Bible is the wrestling match between us finding a home and something outside of God perfectly. And him calling us back, he judges, and, and, and God's people turn, and they turn back to him. He, he welcomes them in. God restores us, and we see that very vividly in the account of the Exodus, where God's people were captive in Egypt under Pharaoh, and God showed up, and miraculously, like against all odds, he used Moses, his guy, to dethrone Pharaoh and, and to overtake the Egyptian army and to call his people out. For us who are in Christ today, similarly, we're hopeless captives. And he shows up by the work of Jesus. He invites us to find our home in Christ alone. But see, we wrestle in that 
fulfillment that what's already done, yet there are things that are, are not yet done in full. And, and what we, the hope that we lay before us is that one day all things new. Again, we will get to be in a place, but the anchor of home is that we get to be with God forever. Home in this world is no home at all. That is what we're looking at through Hosea. We live in between the bookends of this good creation and the new creation yet to come. And, and uh, for those of you who haven't been journeying with us, we are, uh, well, uh, more than halfway through Hosea, which was a prophet of old that God called to himself through some like very difficult ways. And he, and he invited Hosea to speak truth to God's people about 750 years before Jesus comes along. And so what we're looking at today with this in mind, home in this world is no home at all. That home is three things. And the first one is this home is satisfaction in God. That's what, that's what home is for us. So I want to start Hosea chapter nine, and I want to kind of bounce around a little bit. We can't get to all of it, but we'll get to all that we can, right? <clears throat> this is what he says. He says, rejoice not O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages and, and on all threshing floors. We'll talk about that in a second. He goes on, he says, They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. Right? I listen to a podcast. Half of the sentences I start in my life start just like that. I listened to a podcast over the last couple of weeks by the Wall Street Journal, and it was called How to Build a Metaverse. And you might think that that's all forward-thinking stuff, but really it was backward kind of reflecting stuff. And they talked about this, like, initial metaverse, late 90s, early 2000s, and it was called Second Life. I had never heard of it, and some of you were like, oh, yeah, it's, that's my first life, right? Um, so Second Life was basically a, uh, uh, an interactive experience. It was a place to kind of escape from, you know, in real life, and you could kind of invent your own life. And I don't think they had, like, goggles or anything like that to put on, but it was just, like, computer stuff that you interacted with. Part of the appeal was that on the tech side of things, you could create, and, and there was, like, some, some fun uh, in the tech side of invention. And then on the other side, there was creative outlet to express yourself and you could be whatever you wanted to be in that made up world. But, but there were some issues with that. Like people are people no matter where they are. And, and people planted gardens and they made homes and they established neighborhoods and, and cities and all kinds of stuff. And others created nudist colonies and did whatever they could to make lewd, inappropriate living part of that world, as you might imagine. Remember what I said was people are people no matter where they are, right? And so there was one person who was the moderator of this world. And when you're like dealing with hundreds and then thousands and it kind of got bigger and bigger, there's one guy and he was like had to make up the rules. Like how are we going to Make sure that people don't see stuff that they don't want to see, but they get to be who they want to be. So he writes this kind of legal code, and I can't remember if he said seven laws or seven pages. He gives it to his boss, and his boss says, this is really great, but we're only going to have one rule, and here's the rule. Be nice. Now, part of my heart is like, 
I couldn't love that anymore. Like, I hate rules, and like, that's pretty simple. Like, just be nice, but, and, and so they tried to implement that, and then the people who were like starting nudist colonies and doing other inappropriate stuff, they made a space for them. They said, hey, if you want to live like that, you can live like that in your, own, in your own little island, right? And then the other people, they don't have to live like that. And that worked for a little while, and people were happy. But then there, there became another destructive societal problem in this second life, and it emerged from the militaristic gamers who wanted to just mess stuff up. They wanted to create havoc and, and chaos and blow stuff and blow people up. That's what they wanted to do in this virtual world. So they tried to do the same thing for them. They said, well, we'll just put a wall here, and like this is the war zone, and this is the safe zone. And some people didn't know that, and they would like go around the wall, and they would get blown up, and they're like, hey, this is not good. And so, like, they work on their signage and things like that, right? Um, but, but eventually, uh, they kind of settled into that. But here's the thing. There became this problem. Like, the problem was this. The wall didn't stop the spread of violence. And it, and it spilled out where people just wanted to plant gardens and drink tea. They began getting literally terrorist attacks in their own virtual world. There was no shared standard for what be nice looked like, for what it lived like, for what the full life, even in their second life, was like. Be nice wasn't beheld by all of the people. And so, so here's the thing. Where life and community exist and where rebellious hearts beat, humanity breaks every time. And what we get to see from this book and from opening our eyes to the world around us is rebellious hearts, they beat everywhere. And, and for those outside of God's grace, they, they even beat within our own chests. And so what's perceived as good for some is unwelcomed by others. Play by the world's game and keep the world's score. There isn't a place inside or out, not in a metaverse or a simulated reality, not in real life, not, not in a real life mountain retreat or an island paradise. There is no place that's filled with forever peace and ultimate satisfaction apart from Christ alone. And, and likewise, there is no place you can run to escape the incredible love of God, which we sang about a few minutes ago. And there is no place that you can run to escape the perfect, perfect justice judgment of God. There is no place that we can go. So what we see in this passage is he starts off and he says, rejoice not, Israel. Rejoice not. You are throwing a party because you're living the good life. Remember, God's people at this point have kind of like assimilated into society and they, they were in some ways thriving. They were on the back end of that. They were thriving according to the world. So he's saying, you're throwing a party and, and, and you're living the good life, but your good life is not the life that you think it is. Last week, Pastor Scott preached up here and he, and he said, sometimes sin works. And when you first hear that, you're like, Err? like that doesn't feel good. But the reality is like, depends on what scorecard you're using to evaluate your life. Sometimes sin works, and if the highest aim of your life is to have all the money, 
that's okay. Then, then maybe sin will get you that. And if it's to have all the friends or all the whatever it is, sometimes sin works. That's true, but it will not work in the end ever. It will never work in the end, and it will rob you blind even in the midst of your worldly delight. My son this week, he asked me a hypothetical question, and he said, would you rather have a billion dollars, and it went back and forth between a million and a billion. We said billion, right? A billion dollars, or, or cure world hunger. And I was like, oh. Well, I hate just the two options, because I always want, like, can we caveat this? And, well, what if, what if I took the billion, and I, nope. My heart, immediate response in the kitchen as I'm, like, thinking of this is, like, I want a billion dollars. Because that would just be okay, I think. But then I started thinking about it, and I was never going to choose the billion. Gosh, Relax. But I started thinking about like what that would do to someone who took that bet, took that bait, lived their life, and drove the nicest whatever, and did the whatever they wanted to do. But then every time you walked around the city and you saw someone in an impoverished condition that you thought, oh man, that came at the expense of these shoes or from the, uh, this watch or every time you watch something on TV and you saw people that could have been helped by your one decision that you chose self and these people suffered, it, it kind of like, it would make that, that money less and less sweet. So I think by the end, if that were a movie, you would like, can I just turn back time and I don't want the money, right? Real dramatically. God says, you've forsaken me and you've given your heart to other lovers, and you've sold out, and now you reap a prostitute's wages. Maybe your bills are paid, but when the world writes the checks, you can't cash them for eternal peace. You can't cash them in my kingdom. That's what God's saying. And so he says these things, threshing floors, and I know when you read that, you're like, what is a threshing floor? It's a a big circle of stone where, where an animal would kind of pull a little sled. They would put wheat on it and different things. And it would kind of crush up the wheat and the, the stalks and the stems. And then they would put it in a basket and they would kind of sort it. And you, you hear this all the time in the scriptures, like chaff. Like, you know, your sin makes you like chaff blown in the wind. And so they would shake this basket. And all, the only thing that would remain after it was threshed would be the grain, the good stuff, and the chaff is the stuff that's chopped up and just blown in the wind. That's the picture. And so he's talking about this place of processing grain is, is kind of incorporated into feasts and festivals that are not for the Lord. They're turned to other gods. And so he says, your wheat and your wine, it may feed you. It won't satisfy you, but I won't accept it. You can't come to me with with the prostitute's wages. You can't come to me earning stuff by the way of the world. I don't want that. And then he goes on, he says it's like mourner's bread. And then it's basically just the idea of, of a meal at a, at a funeral. And, and the thing of, of this context was contact with the dead made something ritually unclean. They couldn't go to the temple with it. 
They couldn't do religious uh, ceremonies with it. And so that was true for seven days. And likewise, food in the home of the dead became unclean and not available for offerings. And so he says, your food and your provision earned apart from me, they're not acceptable to me. That's what he's telling Israel. So what does any of that mean for us? Especially in light of the fact that, that home is satisfaction in God alone. It means that, that when we live for the world and the things of the world, apart from the God of this world, God's people can't be ultimately satisfied, not today and not forever. We cannot please God in his book, uh, Love Your Church. Tony Morita, he quotes uh, Pastor Ray Ortland, and he says that... that uh, He shared this with his church, right? He says, welcome to church. Now here's the one thing I invite you to understand. You may have noticed when you walked in that the doors out there are painted red. Ours are clear, but just pretend they're red. Oh, that one's red. No, we're good. Yeah, we're good. Uh, Unless you use the elevator, that's something. Um, He says, that is an old Christian tradition reflecting how we enter into the church through the blood of of Christ. Out in the world, where we live the rest of our week, we never measure up. Our lives never complete. We never fully belong. Do you ever feel like that? You should. You should feel like that. Then we come into the church through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And what makes the difference here? The reason why we belong. We're making Uh, We're walking into completeness, already prepared. Therefore, we can be weak. We can be honest with ourselves. We can be honest with one another. We can be honest with the Lord. And he says to us, we belong. Welcome home. That's what makes this different than all the other things. A place to belong. Home in this world is no home at all. But, but home is satisfaction in the Lord. The second thing that we see here is home is exile for, for those who rebel against God. Let's read, I want to start in verse 3. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim, also Israel, or God's people, shall return to Egypt. Remember what I told you about Egypt, that God saved his people from, from captivity in Egypt. Now he's saying they're going to return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria, Assyria is the new world power. They're they're getting ready to take over by the hand of the Lord and judge Israel and wipe Israel off the map. That's what this whole book's been about. Israel, God's judgment is coming for you. You will be no more, and it's coming through the hand of Israel. So, So he's talking about these two world powers, pagan, apart from the Lord. He's saying that's that's where you're headed. And then we read on in verse, uh, let's read on in 6. For behold, they're going away from destruction. 
But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis, that's a city in Egypt, shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their possessions. Things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. So the coming judgment of God, so they're, they're running away from God rather than running to him, and they're running back to Egypt. They're running back into exile. There is this element of kind of the unsettled home, like a, a broken home, a broken family. And what seems to be the case is, is Israel is a, is a child caught in this God and Egypt, and, and they're playing mom against dad. And they're, they're going to God and saying, yeah, but when we were in Egypt, like, it wasn't like that. And then, then they go to Egypt and they say, yeah, but man, dad, his, his rules are different. And so, like, you, you see that. And, and look, I don't make light of that. That's tough. Like, I know that all of those realities are difficult. But when we see it here, that's the imagery that we see our life in the Lord. And, 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 and we're playing, uh, we're waffling at a heart level on what's going on here. So, so here they waffle, but, but God's judgment against living apart from him, it's twofold. It's, his judgment shows up, the, the, the very natural reality of living apart from God is that you find yourself now or later apart from the fullness of life. Just the natural outworking of us in this life living apart from God is that we, we can't live the fullest life that's offered in Christ alone. So the invitation of Jesus is, is the full life, whether we, we celebrate the, the good things or we suffer through the difficult things, the invitation of Jesus is in me, you can have the, the fullest fullness of life. Not just one day in new heavens and new earth, but here, now, and forever. And the, the second part of, of God's judgment is the justice reality of living apart from God is that you find yourself an enemy of God. And you might be sitting here saying like, oh, that's not so bad. It's fine. Maybe you've declared yourself an enemy of God. I, I, I think what, what I want you to know is that there is no worse thing in all of the universe than to find yourself an enemy of God. There's no worse thing that can be imagined. And, and if you don't feel that, like us in this room don't, don't yet feel that, we will. We will feel that. It's, it's a reality today, but it's unseen because God is patient and he waits but, but some of that is made visible in the brutality of the cross. That for those who are in him, God's no longer our enemy. His justice has been served in the brutality of Jesus on the cross. But for those who are not in Christ, have not trusted him for eternal life, that judgment is yet to come. So we read on, he says, Behold, they're going the way of destruction. And the language is, is, is literally an abuse victim finding safety and going back to the abuser. 
You're going back to Egypt. And, and for us, this is what the exile pattern brings us to. Children of God, apart from God, are in exile without a home. And the best we can do is, is whatever we can scrounge up for a hundred years until our heart stops beating. And that's what we have to call winning. Home is exile for those who reject the Lord. And for, for Israel, it's a, a real vivid imagery, a, a reality. Exile was being at, at home, away from God, his way, his people, no place to worship. They were scattered out. No place to worship, no people to call their own, no family tree, no God to worship on their own. And, and Israel were, were sometimes scattered out, sent away from, and sometimes they were just brought in by, the, by the, uh, the army that took over and just the temple destroyed. All the things that made life home for them was destroyed. And then for us, the, the imagery and the reality of exile for God's people, for all who are redeemed in Christ, it's, it's less visible but equally vivid. Exile for us is being at home, away from God, his way, his people, no place to worship, no people to call our own, no God to call our own amidst the world that we live in. So the question is, are you in exile in this world? Or are you at home in this world? That's what you have to figure out. Is this my home? And whatever I get to do for 100 years, man, all my chips are in. My best life right now. 100 years. What happens after that? Well, we'll figure it out. You, you, you're right. You're right, you will figure it out. Or do you find yourself at home in the Lord, even though this world all around us doesn't feel like home? The last thing we see is that, that home is hopeless apart from God. There is loads of imagery in this, this really difficult stuff, the last few verses in this uh, passage. Some happy stuff, some difficult stuff. I want to point to a couple of them. He says, you're like grapes in the wilderness. The, the first figs picked by the farmer. I, I saw your fathers. What he's saying is God is, is making an appeal to the roots of their heritage, their relationships, generations where, where God found them and he called his people. He's walking in the, in the wilderness, in the desert. Imagine finding grapes like, oh my gosh, the delight that the Lord had when he found his people. Or for the farmer who's been nurturing and he's been doing the work and finally he, he goes up. I don't know what a, I just think of a fig newton. I know a fig's not a fig newton, but let's say it was an apple. The, the farmer finds an apple, all right? He's been doing the work. He's been, you know, plowing and, and pesticides and whatever it is. Or if you don't play, the, it's fine. It's, all, it's organic. It's all natural, right? Whatever it is. He's been doing all the work that you have to do. And he finally, wait, I think that's, and he, and he sees it. And he sees the fruit of his work. That's what he's saying. The delight that he has in 
in, in the Israel of old when he found them, when they were a baby. But it was short-lived. That romance has fallen cold. Israel's forgotten their first love and they've gone the way of idols. And so he says, woe to them when I depart. Woe to them when I depart. Leading children to slaughter, a miscarrying womb, dry breasts. They have no ability to, to live life nor give life to neighbor or to their generations. God has departed from them. And then he says, because of the wickedness of their deeds, like this is harsh, I will drive them from my house. In me, you no longer have a home. You no longer have a place. You gave that up. I'm giving you what you want. I will love them no more. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Man, you know the saying, not all who wander are lost. And like, I love that. It's like, oh, like, stop being so stuffy. Like, go live a little. Take a hike, right? Literally, like, take a hike. You know, like, not all who wander are lost, but the reality is that, that all who wander from the Lord are lost. And, and the invitation is, is, won't you come? Won't you find your home in me? The greatest judgment for rebellion is that you will not have a home. No matter where you are, home in all its beauty, security, peace, uh, unguarded reality, a place to belong, a people to belong to, it's all hopeless. It's a hopeless pursuit apart from God. Our hopelessness, it, it follows us as long as we live in a world not our own, with people not our own. A life full of journey where the path that isn't highlighted with yellow bricks. Like sometimes the journey is difficult, but we have a journey with friends and with foes and good and evil and sometimes lions and tigers and bears and, and heartless people and brainless voices who confuse uh, us on which way to go and which path we get to do and, and who we get to follow, people with no courage to fight the fight. And when we find ourselves desperate, clicking our heels with the resounding declaration, there is no place like home, we are met with we are met with a way back. In Christ alone, we are brought all the way home. The perfect presence of God in a world that is not home. He gathers a people that's, that's set apart as the people of God by his work, by his life, perfectly righteous, perfectly pleasing to God, by his death, unjust on his terms, so that we might gain Forgiveness of sin by the blood of Jesus, his resurrection, defeating death and defeating darkness and sin and all of its work. That re replaces the temple where we don't have a home. The Holy Spirit through the work of Christ calls us the temple of the living God. That wherever we are, that is the place that we call home because literally by Christ's work and faith in that work, 
The God of the universe dwells inside of us. So we can be home no matter where we are in the entire universe. He takes us all the way home, and it isn't by way of a, of a hot air balloon, but, but a dependence on Christ to seal our fate at home in God. He is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. Christ comes as light, shining the way home, and his plea is to all who might hear, come to me, all who are weary, all who cannot find rest, and I will give you rest. I will be your rest. That's our invitation. It's not, this book is not a set of rules. Christ is not an invitation to a stuffy life. He is an invitation to the freest life. Like that green chair living, whatever that is for you, no matter where you are. So for those of you who just need something to say, well, but what do I do? Here are three real quick things. How about this? If, you're, uh, bat- if your child's being baptized, you can probably go snag them at this point. So uh, just end the bank and come on up. We'll just, like we're getting ready to start the party, all right? Uh, so what do we do? We get to recognize that home is a person. It's not a place. That's where we get to start. If you've never like felt settled today, that's, that's what I want you to know. Like Jesus, can I come into your life? Can I trust that you died for my sins so I don't have to? Can I trust that you're perfect and you please God in every way possible because I can't? Can I trust your mercy for me? And can I find my home wherever you are? That's what we get to do. The second thing is we get to recognize that a life of radical hospitality is the invitation that we get to send out. For those who find their home in Jesus, we get to live a life that invites people into that home. And that could be your own home. And that could be all those things that we talked about earlier on. Could be uh, the, the freedom to, to live radically hospitable lives so that we might put Christ on display. And thirdly, recognize that the gathered and scattered church is the greatest way to make home known on earth. We get to do that together. You're not on your own. Right? I know that life is hard. And I know that it's better when we're together finding our home and what's already been done by the work of Jesus. So in just a second, I'm going to pray. I preached under 40 minutes. I haven't done that in years. That's fantastic. Yeah. I have 30 seconds. I just want to waste it here. Uh, uh, in just a second, I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to, going to get going, and then we're going to do baptisms in just a few minutes. I, I just do want to warn you, it's about to get uh, a little chaotic. Uh, kids are going to start flowing in through that door, and it's going to be really exciting. So I just want to let you know that, right? God, thank you for these people and that we get to celebrate 13 years of your grace. As we grow up, many of us have grown up together in you. We found our home in you, and we figure out what it looks like every single day. God, and there are hard truths that you give us and hard texts like this one today, but what a gift that you invite us to be yours. No strings attached. That we could just say, God, I'm a sinner and I need your grace. Would you save me? Would you let the work of Jesus show up as if I did it myself? 
God, we want to be your sons and daughters. Would you help us do that today? In Jesus' name, amen.